Have you ever wanted? Have you ever wanted to be on the inside of a circle, inside of a circle of people that you weren't? There's a, there's a group of people, usually a small group of people, usually people, a group of people that you respect for some reason, or you, you'd like to be like them, you like to emulate. You want to kind of be a part. You want to be a part of the group. You want to be a part of that inner circle. I think God's made us that way. He's made us for fellowship and made us to seek out people in fellowship that we respect and that we desire. But as you think about even maybe your own desires in the past and just different circles and different societies or communities that you've wanted to be a part of, those have a way of falling apart. And I'm thinking of an essay from C.S. Lewis, I think called The Inner Ring. You can go find it. It's well worth reading. Bob Farmer is the guy that turned me on to it. Uh, he said, check out this. And it's, it's this idea that we want to be in, we want to be included. We want to be in the group. Uh, not in every group, certainly not in that group, but in this group over here. We have desires, and we want to be a part of that. I can think in my own life as a coming into, well, I was, I was always, I loved music. I loved to sing as a kid. and uh, played the clarinet and the recorder and various things like that, and never very well, but I enjoyed doing it. And uh, there was a choir that was opened up to me, this boys' choir, and the, you know, a significant choir, a touring, you know, competing kind of choir, and you had to step your way up. You had started with the prep choir, and then you moved to an intermediate, and finally up to the concert choir, which is the competing touring choir. And I wanted desperately to be a part of that choir up there, the one that was doing stuff. And I had to kind of, you know, pay my dues and work my way through and receive enormous amounts of musical training in that choir in order to get up to that concert choir, the touring choir. And, and there I was for a couple of years until what? Until I couldn't really sing alto so well anymore, right? Uh, so my voice changed, and off I was. I wasn't in that choir anymore. I, 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 I was out of the circle that I wanted to be in. We all desire communities. We all desire to be connected to other people, people that we love in particular, people that we respect. But when it comes down to it, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant community of God, especially as seen as toppled over and as at the end of time when it all is pulled together and all the elect have been summoned and, and the church of Jesus Christ is there in total. That is the only community there really is. There's the community of the triune God, the Trinitarian reality, which is certainly relational. There's something important about that, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit relate one to another and bring us into relation with them, one God, but the, you know, we're not that God, but we, we come into association. One of the images of hell, we all know the image of hell as far as like torment or torture and, and that sort of thing you know, that people just reject that because they can't stand the idea. But you know, the hell fire and the, the suffering that way is well known. But another aspect of hell that usually isn't talked about so much is the absolute solitude of it. Cast out into outer darkness. Which means by yourself. No community. You got the Billy Joel, I'd rather laugh with the sinners and cry with the saints. Well, you might be able to do that on this side of death. But you won't be laughing with the sinners on that side of death, on the other. You'll be tortured for your own wickedness before a holy God by yourself in utter heartbreaking solitude. That's where it goes. The world always is going that direction breaking down real connections and real relations, where in Christ Jesus we want to build them up. The only true community that lasts is the community in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of that, it all finally boils down into hellish solitude. 
Now, that's all by way of introduction here because we're dealing in a text here where we see the people of God as intimately connected one with another, not just in the moment, not, not just like right now, the now, where we operate, uh, but all the way through history. All the way back to the fathers, all the way back to Abraham, there's a connection that we have with the people, and that this is our people. This is where we're going. This is the fruition, finally, of, of what Jesus Christ has come to do to build his church. And the very gates of hell, death itself, will not stop him from doing it. So I want to get to verses 28 and 29, this idea that the Jews, and the Jews after the flesh, which is clearly what Paul's talking about, his brethren according to the flesh, as he's contrasting with the Gentiles whom he's ministering to, okay, we'll get a little bit more of that as we go, he says something that is hard for me to kind of think of and figure out, which is, as far as the gospel goes, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as the election goes, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So let's take a little bit of a look back, a little bit of a running start here. What are Paul's concerns here in Romans 9 through 11? This is a section we've talked about this plenty. Here's a section of Romans. It's kind of unto itself. It's its, its own little section. It's not entirely detached from what came before and what, came, what comes after. But there's something that Paul's after here in this section. And there's a lot of stuff he does in it. There's a lot of doctrine that he teaches in these three chapters. But what's his main concern? What about the Jews after the flesh? What about Israel? What about God's historic people to whom Christ came? Israel. What about them? Because the problem is, by and large, they haven't received him. In fact, they rejected him and murdered him and have been chasing around the church since those who would believe in him. So what do we make of that? What do we make of of the historic people of God, Israel, persecuting the true Israel of the Lord, those who would come into the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, a contrary problem, or one on the other side of the coin, what do we make of the fact that these Gentiles now are pouring in, pouring into this work, where Israel has been hard-hearted and not come? That's really the issue that he's dealing with. And one possible answer to it is, oh, well, God's cut them off. They're done. And I would, if you listen carefully enough people when they're talking about this sort of thing, there are, there's certainly a theological tradition, I can't pinpoint it, I was going to start talking about millennial stuff, but I won't, uh, where Israel is done. There's no more. Uh, God's made the true Israel in Jesus Christ, which includes believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and that's the end of it. Nothing more for Israel. This is Israel. But Paul, I think, cuts off that as a possibility. He cuts it off right there in verse 1 of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Is it over for them? Are they done? Are the Jews done? He says, by no means. And he gives an answer. But I want to get a running start into that as well. There's a running start to the running start. You're going to love this. Um, Go back up to verse 17 of chapter 10. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. He's talking about, of course, evangelism, and particularly evangelism to the Jews. Right? And that's what he brings up next. And the word of Christ isn't just, I don't think, the Bible. That's kind of what we think about, so we preach the Bible, and in in that preaching of the Scripture and the content of the Scripture, people come to faith. Absolutely the case. They come to faith because Christ ministers to them through the preaching. Christ meets them. That's the word of Christ. It's the effectual call of God in a sinner's life, drawing them out of darkness into light. 
That's the word of Christ. And if, haven't they heard that? Haven't they heard this gospel preached and, and Christ preaching through the preacher to them? That's what he asked here. So verse 18, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For the voice has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Okay, the, the gospel's been preached to the Jews. Didn't they, they, didn't they get it? I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. You can already see, this is back in chapter 10 where Paul's going. Because this is what he develops in chapter 11. Right? That the Gentiles are coming in to, to provoke Israel to jealousy. So he's, already got, he's got this theme already going. Verse 20, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Okay, well, so much as far as like seeking God and that kind of nonsense that no, God turns the lights on. And here he's turning the lights on for the Gentiles. Right? The Gentiles have come to faith and come to see Christ and come to see their need of Christ and are flooding and pressing into the kingdom. While at the same time, God's own people after the flesh are hardened and not coming in. So therefore, it provokes Paul to, to ask the question in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he gives an answer. For I myself am a Jew. Right? I'm, I'm an Israelite. And gives us some, some creds. Right? Gives us qualifications. And he says, there's a remnant. And there's always been a remnant. Okay, so there's one answer. Has God rejected Israel after the flesh? Is Israel done? He says, no, there's a remnant. And there's nothing new about this remnant. There's a case for Elijah. Mary gives Elijah as an example. Elijah's sitting there and it's all me. I'm, I'm, I'm done for God and I'm the last one standing. And what's the divine response? No, I have 7,000 people in the town who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not hardly alone. I have a remnant of people, right? A collection, a small collection of people out of Israel that would be faithful Israel. And God's always had that. That's what Paul teaches here. That's something that's gone on and is still going on. It's going on in Paul's time and it's going on in our time. One of the joys of Senate is seeing people that you often don't see, you know, from year to year, but you see there. And one of them, his name is Phil Resnick. He's an elder in Cincinnati. Um, he's a Jewish fellow, and you know it. Um, because he has all kinds of Jewish things to say. Of course, he's a believer, he's a believer in Christ, but he's a Jewish guy. He was raised in Brooklyn as a Jew and uh, converted later into Christ. And, um, you know, he's, he would be an example of one of the remnants. He's a believing Jew. He trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees Israel's Messiah. He gets it. He sees it all come together. Where so many of his friends growing up in Judaism don't see it. They're blind to the fulfillment of all the promises of God and the types that God has laid down in the Scriptures in Jesus the Christ of God. But there is a remnant, and that's one answer to the problem. Right? So has God cut off Israel forever? Are they done? He says, no, there's always a remnant. There's, there's a, a collection, usually a small collection of, of believers along with that. But then look down at verse 7 for the next question. Just kind of move question to question here as we get to our text very quickly. What then? Has Israel obtained, uh, failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Israel, seeking righteousness, they have the temple worship, they have the commandments of God, there's a whole way of life wrapped around seeking the Lord, but they've missed it. They missed the point of all that, and yet those who weren't seeking it found it. Okay, that's how God has, has, has given it. Now, now that's, by the way, that's us. We're the ones who weren't seeking God. We're the Gentiles lost, totally lost in idolatry. That God says, no, I'm going to shine the light of my countenance upon you and you'll know the true and the living God through Jesus, the Christ of God, and the nations have come. And here we are still coming. 
So that's that the God is God has hardened them. That's the, basically the answer all the way down to verse ten. Is no God's God's hardened them. Their their unbelieving hearts, God has hardened. This is something God's done to them. He brings it up a little bit later in terms of mystery. So what Paul offers over and over again, right up front, is what so many Christians just shy away from and can't stand. That God would harden someone in their sin and turn them over to death. Well, all you gotta do is read your Bible a little bit, honestly. Because you know God does that. Now listen, where does Paul go with this for you Gentiles? What's the application for us? We Gentiles who come in. It's down there a little over in the chapter. We'll get to it. Don't get haughty. Don't think much of yourselves. For you stand by faith. And God will cut you out as sure as he cut them out. Okay? So that's, that's something for us to think about, not only in terms of our Calvinism and so on, but just in terms of our Christian living, that there should be a certain amount of fear at every step, because God is God Almighty, and we are just sinners. But he's kind. And he's faithful. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, and we're in him by faith. And so keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't, you'll be hardened. God will turn you away, just like he does, has done for the Jews here. And that brings us to verse 11, the next question. So then I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Okay, so Israel stumbled. They haven't, they haven't, they haven't correctly stepped here as the new covenant has come, as the Messiah has come. Is it over for them again? It's kind of the same question, similar as what he asked in verse 11. And so he answers, by no means. But listen, here's the point. This is the mystery, right? This is what Paul says. I don't want you to be ignorant a little bit later. There's a mystery here, something revealed. Well, this is it. This kind of interchange between Israel's hardness and the, the provoking of the, or the giving of the gospel to the Gentiles and then the provoking of the Jews beyond that is the mystery. So that's what he says. Now listen to how hopeful it is, I'd like you to remember. Rather, through their trespass, who, who's who are they? Israel. After the flesh. Okay? Let's not lose it. People want, people want to like miss that. Don't, keep, don't miss it. Their, their, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, okay, so Israel stumbled. They, they rejected Messiah. They murdered him. They persecuted the church. That's the stumbling. That's the problem. But through that very stumble, salvation has come to the world. The, the vast world. Not, not tiny little Israel, but the vast collection of nations on the earth. Salvation has come to them. Now, if the trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, the question here, if you're thinking about it, is full inclusion mean remnant? Does the fullness mean remnant? Does the fullness mean the fullness of Israel, the Jews and Gentiles believing in one body? Maybe looking over to Galatians for something like that. We're all brought into one body together. We'll keep reading. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Okay, so Paul again addresses the Gentiles. He's not talking to Israelites. He said, I've got a ministry over here to the Gentiles. I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow I may, uh, I may make fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he knows even in his own ministry, he's aiming at this kind of like secondary salvation of the Jews. Though typically Paul's ministry went where first? The Jews. He went to Israel first. Preached Christ, got kicked out, and then went to the Gentiles. Is usually how it went. But listen to this, the hope of this, also verse 15. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then he gets into the dough being offered 
and the, the holiness of the, the things set apart by God, which is what we're going to talk about now, because according to election, Israel's beloved for the sake of their fathers. It's exactly what's going on here in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then Paul deals with that image of the branches. and says, okay, some have been chopped, you know, cut off, and you, you, you wild of, you know, worthless wild olive branches have been grafted in. So he said, well, what's a branch? Let me read that. What does that mean? Is that individual people? So well, sure, at some level it's individual people, but all the branches are branches that have what on them? Leaves, olives. You know, it's not just a single branch involves some stuff, not just it by itself. And I think we're looking at it that way in terms of what the Bible often does, in terms of people groups, in terms of tribes, in terms of families. Never denying that there are individuals in those people groups, tribes, and families, but God deals with us in terms of tribes and families and nations and so on. Just like I said, the Great Commission isn't go out and save every individual you meet. Go out and preach the gospel to every single individual you come across in contact with, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. What is the Great Commission? I mean, Jesus says it. Go disciple the nations. The nations. That's the target. The nations. All the Gentiles of the world. And of course the nations are involved. There are families in there, and there are tribes in there, and there are individuals in there as well. And so even, uh, you know, if we think of what humanity is, just taking a quick sidestep, I have an atheist friend who posted something on social media saying something like, if anyone's, you know, hurting anywhere, we all hurt, something like that. And I thought, I don't know, it's kind of sappy and difficult to wrap your mind around, but at least from a Christian standpoint, we're all one in Adam. Okay, God constituted humanity in that one man, and we're bound together. Kind of like we're not just individual bubbles floating around. It's more like we're leaves on a tree. Right? The humanity is this tree, and we're all leaves. We're all connected. We're part of one another. We're connected to each other. And so as a Christian, I say, yeah, I, there is a solidarity in humanity. God has made it. He's made Adam a public figure standing for all of his posterity. Not just because we all came from his loins, he and Eve. That's true enough. True, we have the same you know, origins that way. But God has made us to be one, a humanity in that man, Adam, and then, of course, to reconstitute humanity in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're all connected in him as well, right? Where the body of Christ is the body. It has parts, and we're all connected. We're not just individuals floating around. We're connected and part of the same body. So the mystery, then, that Paul introduces as we get there to uh, verse 28, 25, I'm sorry, lest you be wise in your own sight, you Gentiles, don't get haughty, remember, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And there's an implication with that until. Israel's in a spot. Now, they've always had this issue of being unfaithful and God's punished them, but there's always been a remnant. But there's something specific going on in this time. There's a specific hardness that's come upon Israel in this time because they've rejected Messiah and their unfaithfulness, and God has hardened them. God's put that upon them until what? Until the Gentiles have come in. Right? Until the Gentiles are redeemed. And then the implication is, is there then the fullness to come? Right? That's, and that's the great question here where Paul doesn't quite spell it out for us. But seems to hint that, yeah, then, then there'll be life from the dead. Then there'll be a fullness of the Jews to come. And right now they kind of are coming in, in this remnant sort of thing. So that's as we run through it. This interdependence then, the dependence between uh, between the salvation of the Gentiles and that of Israel is the substance of this divine mystery. That God has put a hardening upon Israel in order to redeem the nations 
and then provoke Israel to jealousy and redeem them as well. And that's maybe where we come to the end of the chapter where God says he has consigned all under sin that he should have mercy upon all. Oh, the depths and the riches of the glory of God out of this incredible salvation and mystery that he has revealed. So then, he brings us to, hopefully, verse 25. And I think the first one is easy enough, just in context of what we just said. For, okay, so what do we think of the, the Jews after the flesh? Well, concerning the gospel... This new covenant ministry of the preaching and heralding of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, they're your enemies. Okay? Those Jews who are opposed to Christ, they're, as far as the gospel goes, they're enemies. Okay? Uh, and, and that's obvious enough because they're the ones persecuting the church. They're the ones who, throughout Christ's whole career, his, his earthly career, attacked him and finally brought him down to death, which, of course, is all of God's plan. It's not like the Jews did it single-handedly. They were in cahoots with all the Gentiles and the leaders of the world and Satan's many, I mean, it's all involved, right? But concerning the gospel, these Jews are your enemy. The Jews reject the Messiah and oppose the new covenant people, which opened the door then to worldwide evangelism. That's what Paul's saying. This, this rejection of, of Messiah by the Jews is what is responsible then, the way God opened the door to worldwide evangelism, which means our salvation right now. Right here. Okay? It, meant, it meant it back then, too. It continues to mean that same thing, this rejection of Israel. You <clears throat> say, so, well, why has Israel still not come to their Messiah? Because God's not done calling all the Gentiles yet. That's the step. And when he is, when that's, when that's, when that's full, then it seems there's a provocation or a, uh, uh, to the Jews to come and receive that Messiah as well, or certainly hope and pray that direction. <clears throat> but because of their unbelief, there's a specific judicial hardening that God has put upon them. And I think, I think it's different from the rest of the history of Israel, though there have been hardenings and so on, but there's this, this mystery, this new covenant mystery, that they are being hardened by God so that the Gentiles should come in and provoke them. And, and that hardening will be there until the Gentiles come in. The second statement, I think, is a little harder for us to understand. It's certainly harder for me to understand. I think generally harder for all of us. So the first one is, as regards the gospel... They, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So God chose Abraham, goes back to him, and his seed, and his children. Okay, and that's how it's constituted all the way back in Genesis. When God calls Abraham, he doesn't just call him, he calls his family. And, he, and, and, and his, his little children, not the daughters, but the sons, the covenant is, how shall we say, graciously imposed upon them. Okay? The sons of Abraham, they didn't have a choice if they were going to be Jews or not. They were. They were sons of Abraham, and it's marked in the flesh. You can check it out. Okay? There's a sign of that covenant in the flesh of all the sons of Abraham. Did they have a choice in that? Did they grow up and want to become Jews? Well, No, they just were. Now, could they be unfaithful to that? Could they rebel against God? Yes, and often did. And God visited them with judgment and discipline, and they repent. And he, so you know, you know the process and the, and the stories from the Old Testament. But listen to this. There's no way for a son of Abraham, circumcised, ever not to be a Jew. There's no way out of it. It simply is who he is. That's the gift and the calling of God there. That's what Paul's talking about. Is he comes, the, the, when God gives these gifts and he gives these callings, they're irrevocable. It doesn't go away. 
You can rebel against it, and you can be judged in terms of it. Not just to say, if a son of Abraham, say, you know, uh, Ishmael, or move your way down, we can go back to Romans 9 and talk about that, rejects what God says about them, rejects the covenant, then they're judged not just in terms of nature, but also in terms of the covenant. Because to whom much is given, much is required. So you see, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And your children simply don't have a choice. I'll just apply it straight across right now. I was going to wait until later, but I won't. The, the covenant still functions the same way. It still functions the same way. It's still graciously imposed upon people. God still imposes it upon our children. And it's us, up to us as parents to train them up in that, in the nurture, in the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now listen, children and adults, you can rebel against that. You can say, forget it, I'm done. I'm casting their course from me. I'm done. I've got my own thing going. Thanks, thanks, preacher boy. Thanks, God. I'm out of here. Can you do that? You can certainly do it. Thousands and thousands and thousands have. You can reject the Lord, who is your Lord. You can trample the blood of the covenant under your feet, by which you were sanctified. That can't be done. God allows you to do that, and he will judge you in accordingly which means the judgment of covenant children is much stricter and harder by God than the judgment of the worldly out there, the worldly kids out there. Not only who don't know about God, haven't heard about Him, don't have the benefits of the preaching of the Word and teaching every week, but here's the truth of it. Those who haven't been baptized into Christ Jesus, because that is the sign of the covenant. They are covenant members, and the sign of the covenant is baptism. And God holds us to that baptism. We can never not be not baptized. Once you're baptized, you are baptized into Christ. That's it. No getting out of it. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You're part of this covenant body that goes all the way back to Abraham. Like it or not, it's who you are. Again, you can reject it. You can rebel against it. You can grow and thrive in it. You can say, oh, this is who I am. Great, God, show me more and more. Get deeper and deeper. You can go in whatever direction. You will go with it. And if God's gracious, you'll go deeper and deeper. You'll be sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ because He's the one who gave Himself for you. Before you could even cry out for help. Now some of you remember being baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a benefit, I think, in certain ways. To be able to remember the, the day, to remember the water, to remember what it felt like, to remember the, the situation. For a lot of us, though, and for most through the history of the church, we don't remember just like the Jews didn't remember the day of their circumcision. Like, hey, little buddy, you remember that circumcision at eight days old? Like, nope. But I can see that I was. I can know that I was circumcised. The same thing would go for us in baptism. Hey, little buddy, you remember being baptized? Like, nope. I don't even think I have a picture. Some people do. But I know that I am. The same thing if you say, hey, do you remember being born again? Some people say, yeah, I remember the moment. I remember when the Spirit came upon me and it was, everything was different from that point on. Praise the Lord. But a lot of us, just like through church history, the majority, I think, say, I don't know. I just know that I love the Lord now. I know that I'm alive, so I must have been born again. Because I wouldn't be alive if I weren't born. Right? So that's how God operates. He operates in these, in these long years and through the generations, all by way of covenant. And that, we get so much of that for the Old Testament, and the New Testament simply rests on that. It doesn't need to reteach all of this stuff, does it? God doesn't have to say everything three and four times before we can get it once. But here we have this, this great reality. So even to the point, listen to this, even to the point where the very people who are the covenant people of God are the enemies of the gospel. 
Paul says they're beloved of God because of election, because of the covenant. You think, okay, well, we're not dealing with just individualism here. Right? It's, it's not just a bunch of individuals. It's God dealing with people groups. And the groups of people, or the, the individuals are in those groups of people. And the main group of people is his covenant people. It starts in Abraham. It goes from one man to his family. And from a family to a family of families, right? You've got fellow sons, and sons, sons, and so on. And, and then the, the group of families, you know, the number of families become tribes. And all the tribes together become a nation. Okay, so you can see how these people groups fit in, right? There are individuals at every level of this. But there are lots of people groups and connections and solidarities along the way as well. And God says, even this group of people who right now I've put hardness upon their hearts, that they would not receive the gospel, and they're persecuting the, the, the church, they're persecuting my people, they're still beloved by God for the sake of the covenant made with their fathers. Because God is like that. God doesn't let go of people. God doesn't let go of his promises for sure. And his promises are all yea and amen where? In the flesh? In baptism? In circumcision? Is that where all the promises of yea and amen are? Yes, if you see that rightly, because circumcision points to Christ. Baptism baptizes us into Christ Jesus. All the promises of God are yea and amen in him. But there's a people of God that he's had through the generations and has persisted and kept all these many long generations. And it's the Jewish people. It's the people of Israel. We're in as outsiders. We're the outsiders been brought in, the Johnny-come-lately kind of guys. right? Which is maybe part of that Johnny-come-lately sense of it is part of the provocation of the, to the Jews. Say, so we've, we've known this stuff for generations and generations before you were even on the scene, Gentiles. And it wouldn't that be life from the dead if those came back and said, oh, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, the Messiah of God. What if the nation of Israel, which is godless currently, came around and said, no, there's been a, there's been a huge sweeping revival of the Spirit of God. We're all Christians now. Israel is a Christian nation. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall have dominion. Is that possible? What about the country of Russia? We think of those great enemies and nasty people now. Well, they have a long Christian history. Anyway, we don't, we don't think in terms of nations being brought into this one nation, but that's what's going on. That's what the new covenant is. And as God has hardened, in this mystery, hardened Israel because of their unbelief, he's called the nations, he's called the Gentiles, broadly and amazingly. So don't lose the bigger picture of what's going on here, because Paul really is laying out for us here the bigger picture of what God's doing. This is the mystery. The hardness upon Israel, the calling of the Gentiles, and then the provoking of Israel back in, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So I've already kind of made the connection coming through and say, well, this is the case for Israel, but what about the church? And that's always been, again, a question that Christians have asked. Well, what's the relationship between the believing church and the Lord Jesus Christ and this long history of ancient Israel? all the way through the scriptures and, and, and continuing on. So what is the relationship of the church to Israel? And of course, the church is Israel, faithful Israel. Turn to First uh, Peter chapter 2. We'll close up with this, really. And notice here that Peter begins with, with what we should be, This is what the effect of all this should be in our lives as far as getting along and, and, and living with one another and 
uh, serving one another. Right, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. And before I read that, just think, what he, all, everything he's saying here to these believing this, you know, Jews in dispersion, these Christians, is that you're Israel. This, these are all attributes of Israel that God has now showed that we are, as the, as the church, as the believers in Jesus Christ, participants in, because we who are outsiders have been brought near. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... Sounds like Paul here. The stone that the, uh, re- the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stumble- stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Again, Peter is saying just the same thing Paul does. This is God's destination. This is God ahead of time working all this out. But you, here we go, are a chosen race. Who's a chosen race? Well, Israel. Israel is a chosen race. He says, you believe it. You're the chosen race. A royal priesthood. Well, who's a royal priesthood? A holy nation. A people for his own possession. All these are attributes of Israel. This is your Christian. This is your inheritance. This is who you are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All that to say, these attributes given to believing Christians are attributes of Israel. We've been grafted in. We've been brought into the promises made all the way back. Kept generation by generation, passed down covenantally just like they're supposed to be, even with the unfaithfulness built in there. God was faithful. And finally coming, not just to the scripture, not just even to the temple, not just to the worship, but to Messiah, who came from the Irish, or came from the Italians? No, he came from Israel. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the Gentiles, is the gift to the world from Israel, after the flesh, from God through the people he had called. And he's not done with them yet. They're not going to be saved out somewhere else and make their own sacrifices. When they are saved, they come into Christ Jesus, just like we outsiders have come into the covenant through Christ Jesus. Christian, it's all about Jesus. Every Gentile ever saved, every Jew ever saved, is saved by Christ Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. And here we have this mystery of unfolding of that salvation between hardening of the Jews, the calling of the Gentiles, and the provocation of the Jews, and all of that. So we have this. Christian, you have a place you belong. You belong in Christ Jesus and his church. You're baptized into Jesus, his death and resurrection. And so am I. And so if everyone who's baptized is baptized into the same thing. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're baptized into him. It's all about Jesus. And this is where we belong. He meets us. He meets us individually and says, I love you. You belong to me. But he meets us collectively and says, you're my people. You who once were not a people have become my people. And I love you. And I sent my son for you. Jesus says, I am yours. 
and you are mine. And faith says, yes, absolutely. You're all I want. You're what I want. We get confused and we get out there on Monday and we start saying our things. We get, but, but Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we see Christ Jesus put before us and we remember, that's right. I belong to Christ and He belongs to me and that is everything. And we do that together. We are the people of God brought into this olive tree, brought into this covenant so that we could disciple our children and they theirs and they theirs to a thousand generations until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Glory be to His name and praise be to His name for salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.